four to five thousand years ago, they could navigate unbelievably accurately to find that needle in a haystack. Knowing that previously we'd stepped into the nuclear age, looking at some of the incredible footage that you get from NASA, I can't help but think about Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. Travelling out to a little speck far, far away of the moon. Is that not the islands of the Pacific? This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note. Unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, a state of war would exist between us. This country is at war with Germany. We'll defend to the death their native soil. We shall never surrender. There are not four or five different races. There's only one race on the face of the earth, and we're all members of that race, the human race. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Let's do it. Episode two. Welcome once again to Look Through History Podcast. Look Through History Podcast episode two. I'm not going to lie. Never thought we'd make it this far. I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> very, like you say, pleasantly surprised about the reception of the first episode. My mum gave it a very high score. <laughs> <laughs> target audience, target audience. Yeah, I mean, the most important person, really. Some like nice comments on, on Instagram. One particular was my favourite, Blaine, who listened and was able to give tips on how to improve the sound quality. I think he was suggesting lots of bed sheets up on the sides to, to dampen the, the echo. And he'll be pleased to know if he's, if he's managed to listen to episode two that bed sheets are sort of surrounding us. We've got lots of towels, slowly, slow improvements. Mm -hmm. Hopefully this one will get closer to passing the Blaine test. We have basically turned your kitchen into a blanket fortress, and I am loving it. I'm fully here for it. Um, so, Greatest Adventures of History is going to be the topic of discussion for episode two. Hugely exciting. Um, again, a bit like underdogs, it seems there's an endless scope and what we can have as an adventure, an adventurer. Upon finding out the topic, I assume you're in the same boat as me of sitting down and thinking, well... What on earth actually constitutes an adventure? Because other than Bilbo Baggins running down the lane screaming, I'm going on an adventure, they don't really label themselves, do they? What's really fun is, again, we've said this in the first episode, doing these sort of quite archetypal stories of underdogs of adventure, you have so much scope to pick something. There's a certain level of wanting to go out somewhere with an objective, um, you know, linking trade routes or finding mysterious cities of gold that might exist across the Atlantic, there's an element of stepping into the unknown. And with that unknown, there's an inherent level of risk. It's interesting that you say unknown, that exact word, because I threw down a whole bunch of writing on a page. And in the end, I did my best and I condensed it down to that single word, unknown. All the greatest adventures from Bilbo Baggins onwards is all about heading into an unknown, either not knowing where they were going or not knowing how they were going to get there, or even in some circumstances, you know, not knowing whether the journey is even possible. When you look at Amelia Earhart and some of her pioneering work in planes, she knew where she was going. 
People have been to these cities in America long enough to have built an airfield. But for them, the adventure was, can she get there in the plane? And so whether the, the traveling, the objective, the way, the destination, an adventure, I think, is really all about the unknown and pushing yourself out to the unknown. Yeah, definitely. And actually, Amelia Hart's a perfect example because it's about not only the unknown, but pushing the boundaries of what's possible. So although she was linking the destinations that had already been discovered, that is, you know, people already live in, the one thing that she was pushing the boundaries of is, is it possible to make that the distance between these destinations smaller? Is she able to improve the efficiency at which we're able to travel between the destinations? In every single one of these stories, the person who's making the next adventure is stood on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. And um, throughout, we even have, well, in you know, Western history, we have the age of exploration. You know, Shackleton, Scott, pushing out to the Antarctic and the Arctic. And again, each expedition was built on the shoulders of giants. But every single one took it that step further, that step further into the unknown. And that, I think, is what constitutes a great adventure. It took a long time for me to settle on an adventure. Like I said, Shackleton... And Scott, I think, were great examples. Amelia Earhart, the Aiden Sale. And for me, yeah, another one of the key ones is that actually humans have been on this journey of adventure and discovery since our very conception. And, you know, looking back 180,000 years when humans left Africa, that's been one great adventure in itself, pushing out from what was known in Africa and the, to the point where 15,000, 20,000 years ago, you go all the way from Africa to to the americas twenty thousand years ago if you can call that adventure that journey an adventure which i think you absolutely can you could almost say that it's innate in in life itself because although we like to think we're the best you you have animals and species that exist on every single continent of the planet from the ants to the snake to the wolf they've all crossed these barriers and have gone and are now found on every landmass across the globe i think when you break it down to that very almost biological sense of having to push forward, push beyond a boundary, push into an unknown. That, for me, redefines what an adventure is. And one phrase you use there, which I think is brilliant, is a constant state of discovery. About always having to build further, always having to see what's beyond the horizon. And I do know who your adventurers are. And I think they are the ultimate example of pushing beyond the horizon. Well, I... I know what your one is and i have to also politely disagree with you and say that i prefer yours actually i'm really really i'm excited really excited for your one i've been sitting here kicking myself that i didn't call dibs on yours first so i'm now feeling under immense pressure i've got to do it justice on your pick well perhaps, i mean there's there's so much more to say perhaps we can pick up any any of the other stuff that we want to say in the conclusion but maybe we maybe we get started with the picks then absolutely ollie what's your greatest adventure well, once again, once again, I'm not gonna. I, I picked probably the most obvious one that's that's possible, but you can't not pick it because as we as we sit here today, in terms of the what you would consider as far on that constant state of discovery that humanity has reached yet, is the story of how we managed to get three men, three hundred sixty thousand kilometers away from the planet, land them on a different celestial body, and then somehow managed to get them off of that body off of that bit of rock and bring them back home in one piece it's it's an absolutely incredible story there's the the people involved the resources involved and the ability to to go and do that just 66 years after the wright brothers have 
manage to actually get flight on a plane is absolutely astounding. And I'm very, very excited to, to jump into it. And the amazing thing about the moon landing is for thousands of years, humans have looked up at the stars and looked up at the moon and have been sort of awestruck by it. Absolutely. The moon is ubiquitous through all human cultures, symbolism and life that has ever existed on this earth. The moon is, well, beyond that and the sun is probably the one constant you can pick for every single human that's been around. And it's it's linked to so much mythology as well. When in so many different in so many different religions and mythologies, it's it's present. I, I literally don't have any notes for this, but it's there is a certain pull other than the tides and gravity with the moon that has a mystique and a, an amazing ability to inspire. I would say um, and and make you think of bigger things. Often with stalk, true it's true stories, this adventure is mired in somewhat controversy because. In something called Operation Paperclip uh, during the end of World War II and the fall of Germany in 1945, the German scientists, the mastermind of the V2 rocket program, which in the previous year had been killing civilians in London, V2 and V1 rockets, Werner von Braun was brought along with his colleagues to the US for his rocket technology and what he was capable of doing. Despite the fact he was part of the Nazi regime, and that's, that's a can that we're not going to trying to open today because we've, we've only got a limited amount of time. We could be here for ages. But that knowledge that was almost built off of death and destruction for one of the worst Re regimes. Yeah, exactly. Regimes on planet Earth is the bedrock and foundation of USA's space program. So it's mired in, mired in controversy and it's an interesting one to sort of hold on to as we talk about what's an adventure, you know, is it, is it right? Is it wrong? Um, and the, the gray area behind these types of stories. But fast forward to the late 50s. Cold War tensions are in full flow and the ultimate symbol of the technological advancements and status in the nuclear era between the world's two superpowers becomes the space race. And this became the symbol and status of the two opposing ideologies, communism, capitalism. And at the, st at the start, despite what we what we perhaps think coming in sort of with, with little knowledge, the, the Soviets were actually winning. You had Sputnik 1, which is the, the Soviet satellite, first satellite into space. They then put a dog in Sputnik 2 and was able to send, send this poor dog into space. And the first US satellite ends in failure at takeoff. Redstone 2. Redstone 2, this is what this is why it's great having you on the opposite side of the table, Nick, because you actually know more about the, the space I race than now, I do. Now I've said that, I don't know if it's Redstone 2, but it's like, just say, one of the infamous Redstone failures. And I think people do forget, like you rightly point out, the Russians led the space race First man-made object in space, first satellite, first orbit of the Earth, first man in space, and yeah, first woman in space. 1961, 1961, Yuri Garin, um, the first human being to, to enter space. And I think when looking at it on the whole, because, I mean, spoiler alert, the US put the men in the moon. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Sorry, you can, you can stop listening now. Um, we'll skip to Nick's part. That doesn't get enough credit sometimes, I think, Yuri Garin. And the, the, the feat of, of which being able to to have that credit. I mean, he's obviously very famous, but when you talk about going to space, the first people on first people that you mentioned, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin. And Yuri Garman was the first man in space. Like, that's incredible. That's an incredible achievement. Until the Apollo 8 program, when the US orbited the moon and came back, that was the very first time the US had a first in space. Every other goal had been reached first by the Russians. And it stung the US. It stung them hard. And what I find 
interesting is that what really riled up the public wasn't so much about an enormous military advancement. In this context, the Russians were better at adventuring than them. Yeah. Maybe that really stung the US pioneer spirit that is so part of their culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. And the, the one thing that the, the US did have going for itself was its just unfathomable amount of money that it had. One year following that incredible accomplishment by Yuri Garin, on the 12th of September, 1962, John F. Kennedy, in the height of the Cold War, made one of the most famous speeches ever recorded. And that was laying down the gauntlet to not only a nation, but the, the whole world and yeah, human civilization as a whole. And that before the decade was over, humans would land a man on the moon. To do this would require a whole host of some of the cleverest brains on the planet to overcome engineering feats that had not yet been accomplished, let alone even thought of for some of them, to create forms of transportation that had not yet been made and that were capable of making a journey that had never before been even attempted. More importantly, they had billions and billions of dollars in which to do this. And if you're gonna, usually if you're gonna put 10 years of time into something and an unfathomable amount of money into it, you wanna be pretty damn sure that it's gonna work. If it was a business venture, you'd wanna make it absolute certain that the achievement was gonna happen. And yet whilst the commitment was obviously the, the money and the time and the resources that they had, failure wasn't out of the question. And at no single point in this journey, although we know how it ends, at no single point on this journey did those involved knew they were going to be, with absolute hunch of certainty, they were going to be able to put human beings on the moon before the clock struck midnight on the 60s. And that's something that is too easily overshadowed knowing what we know. When you take on an adventure of this magnitude, you don't get given that certainty. You're stepping into the uncertainty and you're stepping into danger. And despite we know what happened to Neil, Buzz and Michael Collins at the end, this journey wasn't without human sacrifice to the point where the first crewed mission of the Apollo program ended in really extreme tragedy where the three crew, Gus Grissom, Ed White, Roger B. Schaefer, they were killed when on the launch pad in Kennedy Space Center, there, uh, uh, I think it was through electrical equipment, mal malfunction, with all the thousands of things that could go wrong, fire started in the cabin and they all they all died on the launch pad within sight of the technicians within sight of the technicians there were multiple problems with it the fire spread rapidly due to a number of reasons one of the reasons it was the, the cabin was pure oxygen so you have any spark and it just lights up like no one's business the inner hatch you had to open from the inside the way that the pressure was the pressure was done so no one no one could open the door and three astronauts who were at the, the very height of who they were and some of the cleverest brains of the planet all ended up dying on the launch pad. So it's not a story without sacrifice. And another thing, another reason why I lo really love this, just as a side note, another reason why I really like this story, it's more than just the adventure of going to space and geographically, I mean, do, is it geographic if you're moving off of one planet to another? It becomes something else entirely. You're moving... Astronomic. I don't know. Astronomic sounds unbelievably good. Unbelievably cool. It, both the, the unbelievable cool, unbelievably cool astronomic journey of going from Earth to the Moon. You're not just doing it in terms of that and in terms of that those three people, but you have people journeying into the unknown across the entire board. Um, from the people creating the technology and uh, the engineers to the people making the journey to the scientists behind it who are creating complex calculations for the first time. 
And then you also have incredible individual adventures where they're pushing forward to stepping into the unknown and pushing the boundary and pushing what's possible from someone like Margaret Hamilton, who led the NASA computer software team, who at the time in the, in the 60s, you know, not, not the least sexist period of time. And there's an incredible photo of her where she's stood next to the computer script that she's written, and it's taller than she is, to someone like Mary Jackson, who in 1958 became NASA's first African-American female engineer. You've got all these incredible stories playing out in this. But yeah, the moon's engraved in our human psyche. And onto the story of the moon. We're going to cut out Apollo 8 all the way to through Apollo 10 because everything that you look at in this story is really, really interesting. But we're going to move on to some of the, some of the key areas. One of those key elements is obviously for, for an adventure that we do these days. You're going to need some sort of vehicle to make that adventure, whether that be Shackleton's Endurance or the submarine that James Cameron uses to go down into the trench, the Marianas Trench. For the moon, it is obviously a spacecraft, and there are multiple elements to this. One of the most incredible ones is the Saturn V rocket, which, Nick, you know all too well because you've got a Lego version of it sat proudly in your living room. This is the politest way anyone's told me that I'm a crippling space nerd. I'm incredibly jealous, but I don't know how... I think it costs £100 or something like that. If I had 100 quid, I mean... That's on the Christmas list for next year. Have you seen the Christmas yours? list for many years, and I got peer pressured into getting it by a ten-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> um, after a decade of work and on the back of countless other pieces of technology, the Saturn V was ready. It's the largest rocket to have ever been made at over 100 meters tall. Still the largest, still the most powerful rocket ever made. There's a few rockets in production that could meet it, but even NASA's SLS, the Space Launch System that they're looking to send people to Mars with still has less raw power than the Saturn V rocket. Three million kilograms I've got here for the Saturn V rocket, burning five F1 engines, each burning three tons of fuel a second. A second. Three tons of fuel a second. Burning for two minutes with a total horsepower of 160 million. That's unfathomable. That's balls to the wall. How fucking mental must that have been? I'll go around Sam, top of the biggest pile of rocket propellant in the world. Light her up. <laughs> and I can't, I can't help but think about it in terms of when looking at the footage that's out there and knowing that we've stepped previously, we'd stepped into the nuclear age. Looking at the footage of it taking off, the, the, some of the incredible footage that you get from NASA, I can't help but think about Prometheus stealing fire from the gods and using that fire to pop humans to where they were never supposed to go. Fire and fury taking us to the heavens harnessing the power of the gods and taking us to the heavens exactly and it's it's not just one thing with lots of lots of fuel in it these light and then and go there is also i mean obviously has that element (laughs) but there's also so much highly technical equipment in this one and done vehicle that people have spent entire careers making at this stage and again stood on the shoulders of giants to create it's one of the greatest technological creations of all time. And in terms of journeying, um, you know, the industry of engineering, it's still to this day one of the most incredible vehicles ever built. Only for most of it to fall back into the sea. Spit into three stages, with the first stage taking Apollo 42 miles above the Earth to a speed of 6,000 miles per hour before detaching into stage two to take them 103 miles above the Earth. And then finally stage three, to take them into the outer Earth orbit and ready to set them on the course to the moon, shooting themselves on the trajectory for the moon with the lunar spacecraft releasing itself from the Saturn V and leaving that behind. The journey itself 
it takes three days to to get to the moon. And so there's not really a whole lot happening there other than the astronauts sort of sitting and making sure that their life support systems are up and running. And there's, you know, there's a whole mountain of very, very extraordinary bits of technology keeping them alive during this journey as well, because outside of that piece of metal, it's as unhospitable as it gets. And when you again think about the, the adventures that exist stepping into hostile environments, there's no greater hostile environment to human life than space. So although nothing really much happens during these three days, the ability at which humans can actually even just make that journey through that type of inhospitable environment is incredible. And they're doing this at a speed of 1,168 metres a second. Over a kilometre a second. That is absolutely booking it. It must be the fastest anyone's ever travelled. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, and... After the three days, they start pulling into the moon's orbit. They have an AB transfer from the lunar module, which is nicknamed the Eagle, which again in itself has become just its iconic. own iconic name with the Eagle has landed with obviously Neil and Buzz going on the lunar module whilst Michael Collins circles in the command module known as Columbia. And this journey, trying to, trying to find a comparable way of explaining it, it must be like, and this doesn't even do it justice, it's like throwing a dart from the base camp of Everest only to have it land at the very tip, pinpoint, and then have it with the intention of it landing back into the palm of your hand. The distances and scale of such a journey are almost impossible to comprehend. They're, yeah, for the human brain, I think these types of, these types of statistics, you can say it's 384,000 kilometres away, but your brain's going to have a hard time of actually comprehending how unbelievable that is. The planned landing destination for the lunar module was an area called the Sea of Tranquility. That's the perfect name for somewhere you want to go, having just been launching a rocket and flying through space. A moment of calm. I want to go there on holiday. A moment of calm at the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> I feel like they did, they'd do very good cocktails if it wasn't on the moon. That sounds like the kind of cocktail which doesn't taste very alcoholic, but you have three and then you're unconscious. Gets you absolutely <laughs> lathered. As they're coming into land, it's, clear, it's clearly a crucial point in the, in the mission. And even now, countless things could go wrong, leading to an abort or death. But these were prepped for, and they were dealing with incredibly well-trained individuals. That's the one key thing, I think, again, to a successful adventure, is preparing for the, the ultimate failure of certain systems. And that happens during the landing. There's something, there was something called a 1202 program alarm which was sounded due to a faulty radar unit. It was bombarding the guidance computer that they were using. This was causing it to reboot and try to resort the issue. But of course, they've still got land on the moon. The 10 years, the billions of dollars, nothing's certain. Even at the, this last hurdle in terms of landing people on the moon, something can go wrong, and, and it does. You can't account for everything, and you have to fall back onto the training and the the skill of the exceptional individuals that are on the craft, and also the trust in an exceptional team in the background who have made the, the, the spacecraft what it is. So whilst going through this rough patch, Neil Armstrong as captain has to take over manual control of the, of the vehicle with a heart rate of 160 beats per minute and working with Buzz Aldrin, who's giving him a descent rate. He has to try and land the, this spacecraft manually. And it harkens back almost to an age of sail where you might know where you're going, 
and you've got good crew, you know, who, who are putting themselves uh, where they need to be. But in a strong storm, the captain may well need to make life or death decisions and take helm off the ship and steer it how it needs to be steered so it doesn't end in catastrophe. And sure enough, with 15 seconds left of fuel remaining, the eagle landed on the moon. The eagle has landed. The eagle has landed. 66 years after the Wright brothers took their first flight for human beings, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin takes steps on the moon. We come in peace for all mankind. They spent about overall about 21 hours on the moon before leaving um, with about 20 kilograms of moon dust and rock, which is just, I mean, it, it maybe doesn't sound too much, 20 kilograms of moon dust and rock, but the the symbolism of what they go home with, with that in their hands, it's, it's almost similar to whenever you'd go to the beach and you'd maybe try and see how far you can swim down. You go somewhere nice and deep and you'd see who can who can reach the bottom. And the only evidence you can do is by swimming down, picking up a handful of rocks or a handful of sand and coming up and showing to be able to come back with those with those objects and to bring them in, having known that humans have gone to get it, I think it's absolutely incredible. And having gone with about 3,000 tonnes of weight from the Saturn V launching, once this is all over, just a little over two tonnes in the command module will land back onto Earth, with 20 kilograms of which weren't there to start with. For me, the, the crazy thing is the speed of technology as well. The, the really interesting anecdote for humanity as a whole in space is that Cleopatra's actually born closer to the moon landings than the pyramids of Giza. That kind of blows my mind. It's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite anecdotes to, to, to bring up. I think I know exactly what you mean, Roy. The acceleration of technology, the closeness to Cleopatra talking of human civilization, only 60 years or so since the Wright brothers' first flight. All of a sudden, in historical terms, overnight, the impossible and mythological of the moon was achieved. And we came back with that handful of rocks. We brought the moon to Earth. Yeah, and for me, with any story of history, the most powerful ones are the ones that inspire. And although we spoke about, at the start, Operation Paperclip, and how it actually it began with this foundation that was quite it's quite dark and especially looking at it to, to where it is now with the rocket technology and ICBMs, nuclear warheads. Technology gets tainted, and the the reasons for the technology may be tainted, and there's all this awful grey that can sometimes infect the the inspirational meaning and the, the things that we can take out of stories. Despite that, the incredible thing about the moon landings. And with the, the countless individuals that have looked up at the moon um, throughout history, I think when the, moon land, when the moon landing happened, when it was on TV and everyone would see it, it transcended nationality, it transcended politics, and it transcended all the ridiculous differences that people can sometimes be corrupted by, whether that be, yeah, as I said, race, nationality or politics. And all these fake barriers to, to progress of where we really want to be. I think when people saw that on TV, they were just thinking in terms of humanity. You can't help but feel dumbstruck when looking at the footage. And looking back with what astronauts see, they only ever see the blue planet. 
and how there are no nations, there's no borders. We are one. There's a greater mission and that's to make sure we, we survive, we, we treat the earth with care and that we find a way to live harmoniously with each other. At the peak of the Cold War, in a world more divided than it had been at many points in human history, the universality of the moon and the adventure to get there has become ubiquitous in our culture. And I think, Ollie, it truly is one of, if not the greatest adventures of human history. It's an incredible one, but for me, well, Nick, all I can say is I'm just incredibly happy to be finished with my one. I can stop waffling now. I'm going to drink some of this beer that's to the left of me. And uh, this is what I've been excited about is actually is your one. So um, take it away with yours. Well, upon looking at what I can do as great adventures, I won't lie. My first thought was the moon landing, but you stole that from me. And so instead, I'm going to do two adventures. The first adventure I think is probably the greatest and most well-known adventure of all. And that is the adventure to the fridge to get another Guinness. <laughs> Sounds like a really good adventure. As you know, Ollie, I think that space exploration and in particular the moon landing is one of the greatest feats of human history. And quite frankly, I was devastated when you managed to pick it before me. So you're welcome. <laughs> I I went out and I found an adventure, I think, is at the complete opposite end of the scale. As you said, the moon landing was right at the bleeding edge of technology development of the day. So I've turned the clock back at least 700 years, and I'm going to start by reading out the story of Coupe and the giant Wahiki. Um, I'm going to have to start my reading by apologising in general, because this is one of the great oral traditions of the Maori people, and as such, it is full of traditional Polynesian names that I simply cannot pronounce. <laughs> There's a lot of names here I've swapped out. The important ones I will try, some I will substitute. But anyway, no more waffling. This is the story of Kupe and the giant Wahiki. Kupe was a leader and great fisherman who lived in Hawiki. Surrounding Kupe's settlements were the traditional fishing grounds where Kupe and his tribe caught their fish. When the moon and tides were right, the fishermen headed out to sea and always returned with a waka laden with fish of all colours and sizes. Waka being a traditional Polynesian canoe, which the whole tribe celebrated these catches. The people gathered on the shoreline to greet them when they returned, to divide the catch so that everyone would have their fair share. One morning, when the fishermen lowered their lines at one of their favourite fishing grounds, they didn't get the expected tug on their lines. Instead, when they pulled their lines out of the water, the bait had vanished. This continued throughout the morning and into the day, and not one fisherman caught a single fish. This had never happened before. Many of the tribe were upset when they returned. They secretly accused the fishermen of disrespecting their gods and therefore causing the misfortune. Once Coupe had considered the happenings of the day, a meeting was called. 
The whole island gathered around the evening fire to discuss the fate of their village. Coupe firstly spoke about his respect for the sea and the gods, and how they had sustained their village since times began. Coupe also spoke of the fishermen who had generously fed and looked after their tribe since he was a young man, and how, respected they were within the islands, he committed himself to finding out exactly what had happened. Early the next morning, Coupe and the fishermen lowered their lines at their favourite fishing grounds, only to have their bait taken as had happened the day before. Coupe tried reciting chants that would draw fish to his line, but when he pulled it from the depths of the ocean, his bait was once again gone. Coupe noticed a slimy substance covering his hooks though, and recognised it as the signs of an octopus. He knew that it would be useless to continue fishing and ordered the others to pull their lines from the water. Once more, they returned back to shore, empty-handed. That evening, Coupe set out to the other side of the island, where a chief called Muturangi, and again, I deeply apologise for my pronunciation there, Coupe knew that Muturangi had a pet octopus renowned for its huge size and influence in the sea world. Coupe described to Muturangi what had happened to them in their fishing grounds, stating that it was the work of an octopus. He asked if perhaps Muturangi's pet could possibly know who was responsible. Muturangi looked at Coupe and laughed. I don't tell my pet where to eat or what to eat. If it chooses to eat your bait or your fish for that matter, then what does he have to do with it? But Coupe responded, Then I will slay your pet, and it will never trouble my people again. Unless it kills you first, Muturange responded. Coupe gathered his people and began to build a canoe, a large ocean-going canoe that he called Mata Horora. Again, I'm so sorry. When the vessel was complete, Coupe stocked it with supplies, readying for a lengthy sea journey. Coupe's wife and friends and many warriors and fishermen of the tribe boarded the new canoe and they set out on their journey. Teweki o Muturangi, which I assume means Muturangi's octopus, tentacles broke from the surface of the water and first started blindly searching for food. Each one of its arms was longer than Coupe's waka. A tentacle with huge suckers gripped the side of the waka, threatening to capsize it. Coupe grasped his club and slashed at the tentacle, cutting a huge chunk from its flesh. The waka thrashed its arms in agony, but Coupe struck out again. Teweke Imuturangi's enormous head emerged from the sea, looming over the waka. As the warriors continued to attack the huge tentacle, Coupe pointed his weapon at the wake and chanted a spell, ensuring it would never again be able to dive to the depths of the ocean and hide. Teweke Umuturange was forced to flee across the surface of the sea. Coupe ordered his warriors into their sailing positions, and the chase was on. The chase continued for weeks across the vast Pacific Ocean. Coupe was running out of supplies, and still, Teweke Umuturange managed to keep a distance between them. Finally, one morning, his wife saw a long cloud in the distance, a sign that land was near. His wife named the land Aotuweri, the land of the long white cloud. For those that are from New Zealand or follow the New Zealand rugby will know that Aotuweri, as well as being mispronounced, the land of the long white cloud, 
is New Zealand. And this is the story of the Polynesian discovery of New Zealand. Coupe, his wife, and their whole team were amazed by the beauty of the new land they discovered. The stories they'd known as children of Maui fishing a giant land from the sea were true. Coupe landed his canoe on the east coast of the island. His people explored the new land and gathered much needed supplies. Coupe took his dog across the land to harbours and they left footprints in the soft clay that can still be seen today. Coupe went on to adventure all over the land of New Zealand, discovering many places that we recognise today. Castle Point, Wellington Harbour, Cook Strait, Queen Charlotte and Tory Sound, although in unpronounceable Polynesian names. Having gathered supplies, Coupe set out again and caught up with the giant octopus, where he had an enormous pitched battle. Coupe and his warriors manoeuvred their canoes to avoid being overturned. Bracing with his legs, Coupe struck at the tentacles, but the great octopus fought back, smashing another of its arms into the side of the canoe, causing a huge gaping hole in the hull. In response, Coupe threw a bundle of gourds overboard, which the great octopus mistook for a person, and attacked. Coupe then jumped from his canoe onto the back of the giant octopus and struck a fatal blow to his head. Teweke Umuturangi was finally defeated. Having finally defeated the giant octopus, Kupe and his team regathered and returned back to their land of Hawiki, bringing tales of the land of New Zealand, and then returned again, bringing his people to a fresh, new, unpopulated land. And that is the story of Kupe and the great Wahiki and the discovery of New Zealand. While on the face of it appearing to be a myth and legend and one of the great oral traditions of the Maori, the story is rooted in fact. It was 700-ish years ago that humans first settled New Zealand. The Maori people came from the Polynesian cultures, covering the vast Pacific Ocean, an area of ocean larger than all the other land on Earth. And these scattered tiny little islands, to get from one island to the next, from one tribe to the next, Everything was an adventure. Everything was beyond the horizon. You had to construct these canoes and you had to navigate unbelievably precisely to get there. And what amazes me is these islands, with the exception of New Zealand, the great Polynesian expansions were four to five thousand years ago. And four to five thousand years ago, they could navigate unbelievably accurate to find that needle in a haystack. In fact, that doesn't do it justice. Finding a needle in a haystack is a lot easier than finding an island in the Pacific. But they managed to do it so accurately using traditional navigation techniques, the state of the sea, the angle of the stars, the timing of the sun rises and the moon rises, they could look at reflections on the underside of clouds to tell if there was an atoll nearby, the type and shape of the waves, the temperature of the sea. And with this knowledge only passed on through oral tradition, they were able to conquer the most inhospitable parts of the world, the vast, open and deadly seas. This was done four to five thousand years ago. It took the British Empire 
until way into the 1700s to solve the longitude problem with an ingenious clockmaker and some brilliant mathematics. They could do it 5,000 years before with a hand in the water and a knowledge of the horizon. A bit loose, based in mythology, but the crossing of the oceans, the discovery of New Zealand, and the story of Coupe, he's my great adventurer. Nick, there was a reason I was more excited about, <laughs> about your story than, than the story of the moon landing. How amazing is that for an oral tradition? You can see how that story would have grown throughout the years and also like just told down generation to the generation. It's such an incredible story. But then also the, the fact that you're able to pass down that level of knowledge from generation to generation of how to navigate the waves and the seas in canoes and boats. It's absolutely incredible. And even within the story of the mythology, it brings us back around to what we were saying at the beginning. What's the purpose for adventure? That mythological story has both the elements of the push and pull, the cat and the stick, of these environmental pressures of being where they where they were and setting out and having no fish to eat and the, the environment in which they live being constricted and their way of living being constricted and also the pull of their inquisitive nature of what is over the hill, what is this land far distant or this great fruitful land in the distance and it's the perfect encapsulation of that. You can't, I, can't, I can't help but feel it is perhaps a microcosm is the wrong word, but of where we are today, of we can't help but think about global warming and the issues that we're having, gonna have with in terms of being able to feed ourselves, the, the ability to be able to live on the planet with what we're doing at the moment in terms of uh, climate change, man-made climate change. And the fact that this is, this is a, a story that is timeless. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. The timeless nature of the story, even to two guys who live on the other side of the world and have no links to the ancient Polynesian cultures, it's a captivating story. If particularly hard to pronounce at points, it's a captivating and thrilling story. And I find it interesting you talked about the environmental pressures because people obviously read into the oral traditions and tried to study them. And was there a giant magical octopus stealing their food? Probably not. But was there a shortage of food? He left with an enormous number of people. Was there sim were, fish were grounds being overfished? And that's what forced them south. With oral traditions, there's so much scope for discovery still. We often have a bias towards sources that if it's not written, it's myth. It's made up. But... Every great story is rooted in truth. Sometimes you just have to look a little harder for it. With the Polynesians travel between the islands, I think there's a really strong parallel to be drawn with space travel. You talked about throwing a dart and kissing the top of Everest and coming back, traveling out to a little speck far, far away of the moon. Is that not the islands of the Pacific? Somewhere... Tonga to Fiji or Hawaii, they're way beyond the horizon, out of sight, impossible to get to, a tiny speck in a vast, barren, deadly sea. For me, that's the greatest adventure. There's much more the feeling of, of going over that unknown horizon. Whereas with the, with the moon, there's incredible engineering feats to accomplish to get to the moon. But you can, you can see the moon. We can now observe the planetary bodies that we're looking to go and colonize, such as, for example, Mars. There has to be a certain level with the Polynesian expansion where 
you are li- quite literally venturing into the unknown. And again, you've, we've circled back to the over-horizon, the unknown. My take on it, going to have to respectfully disagree, I think the moon landing is the greatest adventure because of that unknown. Yes, we knew where we were going. We'd been looking at it since the dawn of time. But other than where we're starting, that's the only thing we did know. Was it possible to send something to the moon? Unknown. Was it survivable to have a person in space? Unknown. How on earth do you build a vehicle to get you to the moon? Unknown. Is it even scientifically feasible to produce this, to get there and back again, without killing anyone? Completely unknown. But they did it. They did it in a shockingly short amount of time and televised it. Well, you make a very good argument. This will be the weird situation where we're both arguing for each other, one another's stories. I mean, the moon landing, it's currently the extent of the uncharted territory that humanity has been able to reach. Going back to what makes an adventure, you could argue that the progress in science and medicine, whilst we haven't ventured further into the stars, what we have done has been able to make the average life expectancy for the most part increase. And we've made incredible medical advances, which is an adventure in itself. The moon landing is to date the furthest we've ventured, but we stood on the shoulders of giants with the moon landing. It took the very tip of the spear what civilization is able to do in terms of budget, um, knowledge, and ability to put men on the moon, uh, put humans on the moon. But we're very much stood on the shoulders of giants. And to be put in that position for the moon required a countless number of other adventures throughout time. With the moon landings, everyone who watched that happen were brought along that journey. And that's one of the most important parts of historical stories is the ones that inspire us to do good and to think bigger and to inspire generations to think and dream big in the face of the impossible. But the one that has the purest form is that Polynesian expansion out of the two for me because of the fact that we're stood on the shoulders of giants and because of the fact it's the human psyche and human nature to be able to take us from one piece of land and to have the bravery and the the intellect of being able to make that journey um, to another island across the Pacific. One of the most amazing things that you've said that we was discussing this and sort of discussing it previously was that when we do manage to start to look into traveling further into space, the thing that the spaceships should be called are canoes. And I think that's the perfect mix between the both of our stories. When we do go out and conquer the stars and the planets, you know, it, it, it will take months to get between them, to get back to Earth, to Mars, month-long journeys. Much more comparable to what the Polynesians lived. Months and weeks to travel between Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, Hawaii, New Zealand. But they did that thousands and thousands of years ago. Maybe when we look out to the stars, we should actually be looking back to the Polynesians on how we can do this best. I think I'm quite ready for another adventure.